From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Attorney General Phil Weiser sued the Trump administration numerous times over health care and environmental issues. What happens to those lawsuits now that Trump is out of office? And what other issues are before the AG under the Biden administration? Then, in the midst of the pandemic's tragedy, doctors say that they've developed treatments that will save lives even after COVID-19 cases are under control. And an entrepreneur's idea to help strangers signal to each other that they're vaccinated. You know, this is the kind of thing that can get people's hackles to go down a little bit and get people more comfortable looking people in the eye and smiling and respecting the fact that you know, they're doing their part in trying to keep our community safe. Plus, a Grammy winner from Boulder says the viola may finally be getting its due. CPR represents one of the few unbiased news sources still available to us. And in an age that we need to stay more informed than ever, it's important that news sources such as CPR still exist. The in-depth reporting is fantastic. All the different topics that are touched on in a day are things that we're interested in, and we so appreciate it. Thank you for what you do. To our membership community, thank you for supporting CPR. You make it possible. This is Colorado Matters with CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser spent the past two years fighting the federal government on a myriad of environmental issues. But now the Trump administration is out. What happens next? And what are the issues that the state still faces under a Biden administration? Attorney General Weiser, welcome. Great to be with you. The previous presidential administration rolled back a lot of environmental regulations. It revoked states' authorities to set vehicle emission standards, rolled back national fuel efficiency standards, removed federal protections from some streams and wetlands. Since you became attorney general in 2019, you've challenged the Trump administration over these moves. What is the status of these lawsuits now that Trump is no longer in office? So, Avery, the court system does not move rapidly. And so these lawsuits in many situations are ongoing and they'll have to be a process of winding them down. So we've challenged moves you've mentioned that hurt Colorado, that hurt our sovereignty, our ability to protect our land, air and water. We believe we're on the right side of the law. We're protecting Colorado. And we believe the new administration understands that. But unfortunately, they're still getting people appointed. They're going to have to get involved in cases. And so Each of these cases is different, but in most of these cases, they're still ongoing. What will life in Colorado's Justice Department look like under the Biden administration, do you think? My broad standard is the same standard, which is I want to collaborate to protect Colorado and to defend the rule of law. I believe the posture of the Biden administration is going to be much more open to that collaboration. There were times in the Trump administration with different agencies I was able to collaborate to solve problems but it was more the exception than the rule. I think we're going to see more of an openness to doing that. And this is something that I hope is going to be a general tone of taking states seriously as problem solvers and a real dialogue as we work to solve problems. Another issue that has made headlines nationally and affects Colorado. Two days ago, you released a statement expressing disappointment in the settlement of the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy case. In the settlement, members of the Sackler family who are in charge of Purdue will pay out $4.3 billion over nine years toward opioid addiction treatment. What do you find disappointing about this settlement? 
The Sackler family has pulled out many billions of dollars from Purdue Pharma, money that was made in what the Department of Justice has called a criminal enterprise that engaged in crimes, money that has contributed to people's lives being destroyed, the pushing out of Oxycontin, which fueled this opioid crisis in Colorado is destroying lives. It's destroying communities, and we're going to work hard to get a fair settlement so that we can help support drug treatment, drug recovery, and education prevention programs. This settlement is not, to my mind, fair. The Sackler family is going to keep billions and billions of dollars. We believe they should be contributing more, and they shouldn't be getting, in effect, a immunization. They're going to be free from any more liability because they're trying to cram this down. We're going to fight for a fair result. In your view, what is a fair result or a fair settlement? So we're um, still negotiating that out, and we want to make sure to get as fair a result as possible. We recognize in this case there's some states who've already said they would accept this amount. Um, the money has ri- risen, the offer, since that um, agreement by some of these settling states, but I'm part of a coalition of states fighting for more. So we're going to keep pushing to get more to improve this deal so that people of Colorado can at least get some measure of appropriate compensation. Uh, There are people whose lives have been destroyed. We don't have enough support for drug treatment and recovery programs as is. We want to make sure the Sackler family and Purdue Pharma pay their fair share towards this critically important goal. So it sounds like to you, fairer means more money. More money. How much money would Colorado potentially see from the settlement as it is, and would that go toward opioid addiction treatment? Yes. The, the the true north here is that all the money that we get from these cases, this is not the only case. We already have a settlement with McKinsey. It was a 575 or so million dollar settlement where Colorado is going to end up getting $10 million from that. So, you know, you can do the math here. This is going to be probably orders of magnitude larger than McKinsey settlement. Um, so it would bring uh, significant funds to Colorado. And as you said, all the money is going to go to how we abate this crisis, which is drug treatment. We have at most 20% of the drug treatment capacity we need for this crisis. And we saw more overdose deaths in 2020 of drugs, mostly opioids, than ever before. And all of us know people who have lost lives, whose families have been harmed and individuals whose potential has been stymied because they get addicted and then that addiction takes over their lives. Another issue that has become especially pertinent during the pandemic, earlier this month, you announced that the Justice Department would begin investigating cases of unemployment fraud in the state in conjunction with the Colorado Bureau of Investigation and the Department of Labor and Employment. But CPR's Andrew Kenny found in his reporting that the crackdown on unemployment fraud has made things difficult and delayed payments for people who legitimately need unemployment insurance. How do you thread the needle? This is an important and challenging uh, administrative uh, issue that the Department of Labor and Employment is working through, which is how do they create the right protections so that fraudulent actors aren't getting checks, but how do you not prevent people who need money from getting it? Um, That is something they are working through to figure out the right protocols, the right systems to move quickly. Where we fit in is where someone has been the victim of a fraud. Someone has filed for unemployment insurance in their name. We want to try to figure out who those people are And we want to crack down to go after them, hold them accountable. Um, This is a terrible thing to do, to take someone's identity, 
try to use it to make a quick buck. And if we can find people who are doing that, and this is why we set up a statewide task force to work with district attorney's offices, Colorado Bureau of Investigation, and the Department of Labor and Employment, because we want to go after these people. The other thing that we're focused on is a lot of the individuals who are victims here may not have realized that their identity has been compromised. Because of data breaches like Equifax, your information is probably out there. And if you have one of these frauds in your name, that means someone's got access to your data and is using it against you. We put out identity theft repair kit on our website, stopfraudcolorado.gov, where you can learn more about how to protect yourself. Let's move on to police reform and issues of racial justice. Last year, the Colorado General Assembly passed a police reform law that required the use of body cams and outlawed the chokehold, among other items. How has the training been going? We're working hard to implement this Senate Bill 217. It was one of the first such measures that was passed uh, after um, the murder of George Floyd. It was something that Colorado worked hard to do in our Colorado way. It was a collaborative with law enforcement, bipartisan effort. We in the Department of Law here oversee the Peace Officer Standards and Training Program, which means when it comes to both police training and the police accountability measures, we have a critical role. We're working to develop rules to use the authority that we got under this new law. We're working to develop new training to address issues to prevent undue escalation of incidents with police and community members. And we've actually already decertified uh, law enforcement officers who've been untruthful. That's a new law that was passed actually a little bit before the Senate Bill 217, part of the same effort. We need to make sure that we can build trust in law enforcement, and we in Colorado have a robust program to do so. Is the Justice Department taking step more steps for more transparency about police training? Yes, we're working hard to be able to articulate what our overall agenda to police training is. And it's an important point because we have an agenda that we think we can really transform and reimagine police training, starting with the academies. Something that the legislature has given us funding to do is create a job task analysis, which means what are the core competencies of being an effective police officer? How do you make ethical and sound decisions under stress? Or to use another word people talk about, how do you have emotional intelligence so that when you're in difficult situations, you make the right decisions? We're going to work on building a modern curriculum that is going to effectively train law enforcement here in Colorado. That's going to take some time. Um, We're going to need community engagement, and we're going to work with all the police academies in Colorado, and we've got a whole bunch of them. You launched a grand jury investigation after the death of Elijah McClain in police custody last summer. Can you give us any updates on that investigation? Unfortunately, there's not a lot I can say. The way the grand jury process works is that we are working with the grand jury, and until the decision comes back, Uh, the process itself is governed by secrecy. So it is ongoing is what I can say. And that when I'm able to make any announcements about it and provide additional information, I will do so. And are there any updates on the timeline you could give us? Unfortunately, I can't. Uh, The process needs to take whatever time that it takes. Um, We routinely don't comment on pending matters. And this is a, a notable such case where there's actually additional limits on what we can say. We also have a pattern and practice investigation going for the city of Aurora. That's a civil rights investigation using the authority we got under that Senate Bill 217 that you referred to earlier. Uh, That's a parallel investigation, which is more broader in terms of systemically how has the city of Aurora handled civil rights issues. Coming up, you're going to testify before the House Judiciary Committee on big tech monopolies. Will you be pushing for antitrust enforcement for these companies? 
Absolutely. What I have seen and what I have heard from consumers all around Colorado and innovators here is that we have a very concentrated marketplace in a number of industries. Big tech is one of them. And when you have a firm that is dominant and has the ability to exclude competitors, that's bad for consumers. Consumers want choice in the marketplace. They don't want a single firm having a chokehold in the market. And Google in internet search and search advertising and Facebook in personal social networking, those are the only games in town basically for people. And when you look closely over the last decade at the conduct of both firms, what you see is a pattern of what economists would call predatory action, which is not competing on the merits, but undermining rivals' ability to compete. And in our complaint in both cases, we've worked hard on both these cases, we lay out what this story is. That's something I'll share with the members of the antitrust subcommittee, which include Colorado's Jonah Goose and Ken Buck, both of whom have been really committed to sound antitrust enforcement. We have to recognize at this point in our nation's history, we need more antitrust enforcement. We need more robust competition policy because we're seeing more concentrated markets and more dominant firms being able to exclude rivals and hurt consumers. Do you foresee more regulations on big tech companies coming down? I believe we're likely to see both robust antitrust enforcement and there is going to be and should be more regulatory oversight. That regulatory oversight will protect, for example, consumers' privacy. We all have our information out there being used and in some cases abused without our knowledge. We deserve what President Obama called for almost a decade ago, a privacy bill of rights, so we have more control over our own data. We also deserve more competition. And if you can have regulations like data portability, you can bring your data from one platform to another, that can enable competition. So I do believe we should be seeing more protections in this technology world where so many of us are living. And that's going to take leadership on the federal level. I am game to work with leaders like Congressman Jonah Goose and Ken Buck to make progress. Another issue of importance, there has been an uptick in hate crimes against Asian Americans since the onset of the pandemic. How can you address this issue? We've talked a little bit about police training. And one of the things that we did early in my tenure is create a partnership with the Anti-Defamation League to create new police training around hate crimes, investigation, and reporting. We need transparency on what's happening because we've seen rising incidents of hate crimes over the last several years, and it affects all of us. And secondly, part of what I feel an obligation as a public official is to communicate a basic message. A hate crime against any one of us is a hate crime against all of us. The American motto, the American way is e pluribus unum, from many, one. And that's what we need to be. So we're all Asian Americans this week in solidarity with a community that has been feeling under attack, hurt, and suffering. We need that spirit here in America, and we have it here in Colorado. Phil Weiser, we'll have to wrap up there. Thank you very much. Pleasure to join you. Thanks for the time. Phil Weiser is the Colorado Attorney General. Up next, how the pandemic has advanced treatments beyond COVID-19. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. John Evans joined the military after 9-11 to get his life on track, but then... I was sitting on the edge of my cot, get my boots on, and then there was a very loud explosion. And almost immediately, there was uh, some scrambling on the, on the radio, and 30 dead, two wounded. The trauma led to addiction, 
but John found his way back through recovery. His story, this week on Back From Broken. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Doctors say for all of the misery the pandemic has brought, it has also helped advance medical treatments even beyond COVID-19. One is a pretty simple concept, prone positioning to avoid putting patients on respirators and possibly reducing fatalities. Dr. Ivor Douglas has been studying prone positioning for 20 years. He's also an intensive care pulmonologist at Denver Health and is leading the hospital's COVID-19 response. Dr. Douglas, welcome back to the show. And thank you for the invitation. As we said, this seems like a pretty simple idea. Explain what prone positioning is when it comes to treating patients. Thank you. I think there are a couple of definitional issues here. The first is to define the disease that we're focused on in these patients. And I'm going to use the term ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome, as the catchall. And the understanding that the otherwise obviously simple strategy of letting a patient lie on their belly and chest instead of their back and their butt seems uh, as a pretty straightforward idea. And yet, despite an abundance of evidence of therapeutic benefit over decades, it really has been the COVID-19 pandemic that has brought this uh, fairly well-established therapy to the fore. And the major reasons that we have uh, urged the use of the strategy, both locally and nationally and globally, um, has been because it not only improves the way oxygen refreshes the blood through the lungs, but also because we have good evidence of improved survival in broad groups of people with that disease, ARDS, both from COVID-19, but also from a plethora of other acute inflammatory and traumatic disorders. In pre-COVID-19 days, what patients did you use this position with? So I think that the, it's important to differentiate things that we have done and things that are commonly done in the broader community. We have applied the therapy to people with ARDS, a very substantial number of people in our IC on a daily basis from uh, complications of influenza, pneumonia, traumas, blood transfusion and drug reactions who develop a swelling of their lungs whose level of oxygen drops below a critical threshold. And our strategy has been to initiate this therapy both through our research and other activities early on, often within the first eight hours of the treatment of the patient on a luck support machine. Now, the challenge is that our practice has, until very recently, been way out of the, the medium of practice uh, globally. Um, and as I say, it's taken a tremendous amount of effort to get folks to adopt this otherwise simple and straightforward maneuver, um, uh, because for the same kinds of patients, most institutions have not practiced that. In fact, fewer than 20% of institutions uh, would be practicing this on a regular basis prior to COVID. And what changed that? What put this more in the public eye? And why have hospitals across the world started putting patients on their stomach to help prevent having to put them on a ventilator? I think the first is that there has been perceived burden to care providers to actually perform the maneuver of turning somebody onto their belly when they're gravely ill. And indeed, it takes a little practice and a very well-coordinated team, emphasizing again the idea here of team, and an ICU care group is, is really essentially that, a group of multiple disciplinary experts, of respiratory therapists, nurses, uh, physicians, and others, we have to coordinate and plan to do these maneuvers. 
So I think that the large number of patients who were gravely ill for whom there was no other therapy available to prevent uh, damaging of the lung further on a ventilator um, in numerous hospitals around the world, starting obviously in the Far East and then in uh, Northern Italy and others, really mandated that ICUs come together and actually implement uh, this evidence-based practice by uh, planning, training, and coordinating to do this on a regular basis. The increment that we have learned is that um, the original practice suggested that to prevent complications, the patient needed to be turned returned to their back after about 18 to 19 hours for a few hours a day to prevent the kind of complications that might occur from just lying in one position. And so we've recently published our experience with our first uh, 90 or so patients in the early part of the COVID and showed that in an effort to preserve the available PPE and reduce risk to the patient, that once a patient is turned onto their belly, they don't need to be returned on a daily basis to their back, and they can be left on their belly with some special precautions until the level of oxygen improves to a certain amount, and then they can be safely returned. And on average, that's four or sometimes five days in ICU, and in one patient, as long as a month. Um, now, that becomes very challenging, as you'd imagine. Absolutely. And as we've said, the alternative is to put patients on a ventilator. You mentioned increase of lung damage on a ventilator. Do you know for sure that it is typically better to try this proning approach? Yeah, and we have very good data, both from animal studies, some from my research group and many from others around the world, as well as studies in humans that placing patients into this uh, prone position reduces the stressful effects of stretching the lung with the, the air that's blown in there with the ventilator, and that that may well be the driver of why there's a reduction in mortality for these patients. Interestingly, although this position improves the delivery of oxygen a lot, it seems that in itself does not explain the reduction in mortality. It has a lot to do with uh, preventing further damage to the lung and preventing the lung becoming an engine to drive damage interestingly, from a chemical release into the rest of the body in sick people. So um, I think that we, we have fairly convincing evidence. It's not conclusive, but at a high level, scientifically. And when you say reduce the evidence that there is a reduction in mortalities, you're talking about how at the beginning of the pandemic versus now, people are more likely to survive COVID-19, even if they're admitted into a hospital. Um, and it sounds like you're saying that this proning is, it may have reduced fatalities. I think it's contributed. Let's be very clear. None of us really have a clear handle on why mortality rates for equally sick patients are lower now than the beginning of the pandemic. But if you think about the little data that we know, corticosteroids we've discussed on this program before, perhaps the effect of an antiviral, uh, we really don't have any other substantial evidence that any of the therapies we've applied other than careful ventilation and prone position uh, improves survival in these patients. And so I think it's part of the mix. Dr. Ivor Douglas, I want to thank you so much for spending time with us today. Again, many thanks and uh, hope that when we speak again, we'll be through COVID, but please ask folks to continue to wear their masks, distance and go and get those vaccines. I sure hope so too. Dr. Ivor Douglas is an intensive care pulmonologist at Denver Health and is leading the hospital's COVID-19 response. Dr. Douglas has been studying the use of prone positioning for patients for 20 years. 
Mesa County's mass COVID-19 vaccination site is easy to find. It's in the heart of Grand Junction in an unmistakable convention center staffed by friendly volunteers. There's even ample free parking. But all that means nothing if you can't leave your home. CPR's Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg has this story about an effort to bring vaccines right to some medically vulnerable residents. For months, Mary Salinas has seen images of people getting their COVID-19 vaccine on the news. Finally, it's her turn. All right. Do you want a countdown or a surprise? No, just a surprise. Okay, go ahead and relax. There you go. Take a deep breath. Mita White, a physician assistant student, presses a needle into Salinas' arm. A little sting there. And you're done. That was it. Yeah, that's so fast. A totally standard vaccine experience. Except that Salinas got hers sitting in an easy chair in her apartment. Oh, it's wonderful because I really can't get out anymore. She has mobility issues and a lot of pain. It would be dangerous and difficult to get her the few miles downtown where the vaccine is being distributed. I wanted it immediately, but and I'm 72, so I should have it right, right away. But I didn't know if it would be a long time before I could get a shot. So this is a total surprise for me today. Salinas is one of 154 people getting shots delivered to them on this day, thanks to a partnership between Mesa County Public Health and Colorado Mesa University. All the recipients are residents of the Grand Junction Housing Authority's independent living communities, where mostly seniors live in individual homes but receive more support than if they were completely on their own. At the Nellie Bechtel Senior Apartments, it feels like a party outside the community center as residents wait for their shot. Lucky day! A woman claps her hands as she's called up. All around her are eager seniors in masks, some with canes and oxygen tanks. All this excitement is a big deal for a county where some people still question how real the virus is. Yeah, in the beginning, I thought it was, somebody told me it was a conspiracy. (laughs) And 68-year-old Diana Love says she believed that for a while. And then I thought, oh, that is so stupid. Watching the news helped change her mind. So did talking with her friends. Now she knows what she'd say to someone who won't get the vaccine. I tell them, you know what, it's all up to us to keep other people safe. Love worries she could get her grandkids sick. Mary Salinas, who got her shot in her apartment, is scared she could infect the babies of her home health aides. And that's what these residents keep coming back to. Not their own health, but everyone else's, despite their own increased risk. You know, when you look at those that had the most serious consequences from getting COVID, this is the group. Amy Bronson runs Colorado Mesa's Physician Assistant Program and helped make the day possible. Sitting in her car between vaccine events, she says many of these seniors have been isolated for more than a year. And so to be able to know that by getting a vaccine, then it's going to open up some of life for them again, I think it's just a huge piece of their mental and well-being. Of healthcare workers offered the vaccine in Mesa County, it's estimated only 40 to 60 percent have decided to take it. But these seniors are not hesitant, especially when they can get vaccinated on their front patio, like Teresa Montano. 
I'm not scared of shots at all. Good. <laughs> I'm so, really, I'm looking forward to this one. The 71-year-old asks Mita White whether she'll come back to give a second dose. But like everyone this day, Montano is getting the one-shot Johnson & Johnson vaccine. All right, I'll yeah. take the one and done. Even better. I'll okay, yeah. Montano has her EpiPen at the ready, just in case. But she doesn't have a serious reaction to the shot, except for relief. I feel good. I'm so happy. You don't know how, how it feels when you don't know where you're going to go get your shot, and it's real important to get the shot. You have to protect everybody. And that's what I'm doing. I'm protecting myself and all my friends and my neighbors. She says she might even restart her outdoor neighborhood coffee club once the weather gets nice. Meanwhile, the university and health department hope to bring mobile vaccines to more people soon. And similar programs have started to pop up across the state. In Grand Junction, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. What do you do when you're walking by someone these days? Maybe the kind of dance Pete Scheinbaum of Boulder noticed when he walked his dogs on a trail near his house. I watched, you know, a group of people walk down the trail and another group of people, you know, sprint off in the opposite direction. And, you know, I was just thinking to myself, well, in several months when one group is vaccinated or hopefully both are vaccinated, how are they going to pass each other? And how are they going to feel comfortable not shielding themselves and diverting their eyes and not even smiling anymore, which is really sad. Scheinbaum is an entrepreneur and he thought, what if people could wear something that said they'd been vaccinated? After all, when you go to the when you used to go to the polls, if you can remember when people did that, you would leave the polls and they'd give you I voted sticker and people were very proud of that. So he started a company called I Got Vaxxed. And that's exactly what the white silicone wristbands it sells say in bright red letters. I wanted it to be not exactly like a medical ID bracelet, but I wanted to make sure that it was noticeable. He thinks the wristbands might help people break the habit of dancing around each other on trails and assure service workers that customers are vaccinated and vice versa. If you think about schools, think about restaurants, people that are essential workers, you know, as they're interacting with people at supermarket checkout lines or waiting tables or providing services for cars or anything else. You know, this is the kind of thing that can get people's hackles to go down a little bit and get people more comfortable looking people in the eye and smiling and respecting the fact that, you know, they're doing their part in trying to keep our community safe with the vaccinations. Of course, the wristbands will hinge on the honor system, that people will only wear them if they're fully vaccinated. And though the CDC guidelines now allow people who have been vaccinated to gather in small groups with each other or with unvaccinated people who are at low risk for serious illness, it still recommends that vaccinated people wear masks in public because research into whether vaccinated people can spread the virus is ongoing. The pandemic isn't over by any means, and folks who are unvaccinated and are most vulnerable are still getting very sick and dying. So Scheinbaum hopes the wristbands will get out another message. Just to remind people that you know, vaccinations are available, and if you qualify, you should go out and get it. So far, Scheinbaum's sold 30,000 of these $5 wristbands in the United States and abroad, and donated some too. There are plenty of competitors making wristbands with a similar message. Scheinbaum hopes his will be the one that catches on and that he will get to wear his own soon. I can't wear my band yet because I haven't had my shot. Scheinbaum, who falls into the 50 and older age group, will be eligible for a vaccine tomorrow. Tomorrow, my co-host Ryan Warner asks Coloradans about their vaccine selfies, why some people take them and post them to social media, and why others don't. So I am totally in favor of vaccine selfies. I absolutely love them. 
I just couldn't put myself in a place where I'd hear negativity about it. It was just a moment of joy for me that I didn't want to put it out there and have risk um, hearing someone be negative about it. Plus, best practices to keep your health information safe if you do decide to take a vaccination pick. That's Friday. Mirari by filmmaker Lee Isaac Chung picked up six Oscar nominations this week, including Best Picture, Best Actor, and Best Director for Chung. He was born in Denver and later moved with his family to Arkansas, where they started a farm. His parents came to the U.S. from Korea in search of the American dream. Mirari is a retelling of his childhood. He recently spoke with my colleague Ryan Warner. Isaac, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you so much. Um, this is great to be speaking to the state of my birth. Of your birth. I yeah. want to start by <laughs> thanking you for this film. It gripped me from the get-go. I can't stop thinking about its emotional depth. How, how old were you when your family moved from Denver to the farm in Arkansas? Well, actually, there's a lot that's fictionalized in the story. So I was only maybe two months old when we moved out of Denver. My, my dad started off in Denver um, as a chicken sexer. And uh, that's where he saved up enough money for my mom and sister to move from Korea over to the U.S. Now, you, you can't just and... say chicken sexer like that without explaining what a chicken... <laughs> <laughs> you just said a term we hear every day, Isaac. What is a chicken sexer? Well, you know, this is a job that affects almost anyone who eats chicken. So it, it is something people should know. But uh, it's a job in which baby chickens, after they've hatched, need to be separated by gender. And there's a special technique that was created by the Japanese. And it's something that a lot of Korean immigrants actually did in this country. They were the ones who, in these dusty warehouses, were separating male and female chickens. And it's a skill that you learn. It's not very easy or intuitive. You, you really just have to train many months for this. It is arduous work. And this is how your parents earned the money to be able to buy the farm where you eventually moved. And th this is depicted as yeah. well in the film. Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, they moved first to Atlanta. And then from Atlanta, around the age I was uh, five years old, uh, we ended up on that farm in the Ozarks. So that's what you see in the film. I suppose that means you don't have vivid memories of Colorado. Uh, Arkansas might have been, what, your first images? Yeah, but I'd like to think that it was still in my blood and bones because I still love the mountains. And uh, my, my parents and sister and husband all live in Colorado Springs now. So we know Colorado quite well now. Okay, we're hoping they're listening, Isaac. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what was that move to Arkansas like? As a kid, I just remember that for me, it was a big adventure to go to this wild plot of land that my dad uh, was so excited about. Um, he was always talking about the color of the dirt, and that's something you see in the film. Uh, we had 50 acres of land, and he didn't tell my mom that we were going to do this. So that's something you see in the film as well. <laughs> so I, I kind of remember those conflicts as, uh, that, that they were having as they were trying to eke out a new living on a farm. But for me, I mean, I, I loved it. And now as a grown man, I kind of look back at my dad who did this at the age that uh, I am now, mm. um, bringing the family over there. And I have a whole different appreciation and perspective for that time in my life, essentially. Now, in the film, the, the adults, your, your father, they grow Korean vegetables. Was that true as well for your family in real life? 
Yeah. Uh, so many of the things that you see in the film, they start off from actual uh, events that happened in my life. And I'd say that a lot of what's fiction in the film is the way in which the people are depicted. I, I tried to fictionalize them more so that uh, I can increase the drama and the tensions and conflicts between everybody. But there are a lot of elements like the fact that my dad did try to grow Korean produce. He was growing Korean pears. Uh, that was what he was he was doing. And it was tough work. And that's something that we we tried to depict as well in the, in the movie, that farming is really, really difficult work. I, I want to follow up on two things. You talked about the color of the earth. What was the color of the earth there? Um, there in the Ozark region, it's uh, a deep red color. My dad used to say it's really good for fruit trees. So that's why we ended up doing Korean pears. And what does a Korean pear taste like? It, the texture is nice and crisp, but it's sweet and has kind of a taste of a pear that you think about in, in uh, Western pears. Um, and this was in the 80s. No one had heard of Korean pears or Asian pears. And my dad thought it was going to take off. And what I've noticed now is that uh, Korean pears are becoming more trendy, at least here in Los Angeles and other places I've lived. And uh, I think he was a bit ahead of his time, maybe too far ahead of his time. They're perfectly round, right? They're not what we think of as pear-shaped, if I'm thinking of the ones you're talking about. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. Some, sometimes people call them Chinese apples because, you know, the, the texture and the shape of them. They have very thick skin, uh, but they're very sweet. That's the joy of eating them. There's a moment of tremendous symbolism from the get-go. The Yi family moves into a home that's up on blocks. It's a double wide. But there's no staircase to get in. They have to, like, leap in. And it really did strike me as a symbol of the difficulties that they would face, the uphill battle, if you will. Mm. Talk about setting a tone in a film early on. Yeah, I, I'm so glad you, you you saw that and you appreciate that. Uh, I, I want to correct you that it was a single wide because those of us who've lived in single wides, we dream of the double wide, um, <laughs> but it was a single wide. And uh, that's one of the details that I, I do remember about that home is that it was up on, uh, when we got there, it was up on wheels. And I found that so fascinating as a kid. And there was a feeling of uh, mobility and possibility with this house. And that's kind of the way I felt that my dad looked at it. But the way my mom would look at it, of course, is, you know, you show up and there are no front steps. There's no way to really get inside unless uh, your dad picks you up or uh, you're helped up. And that to me kind of felt like a symbolic tension between the husband and wife in this story. And, and it was a reason why I wanted to put that detail in. Um, a pivotal moment comes when grandma moves from Korea to Arkansas. And the two kids who've never met her really don't like her much at first or the smells she brings. There's a Korea smell. You've never even been to Korea. Grandma smells like Korea. David. Oh, yeah. What about Grandma smell? Because I'm going to go to the in Korean there, the dad is threatening to spank the boy, tells him to go to bed. Isaac, fundamentally, this is a multi-generational story. Could yes. you tell us about how you developed all of these connections within the family? For me, for a long time, I wanted to tell a story like this in which there are multiple generations. My view on that is within a multi-generational perspective on life, you really get different truths and different ideas and different 
wisdoms. You know, the, the, the wisdom of a child is just as prescient and, and important as the wisdom of someone who is an elderly person. And I love that idea that I could maybe shape a story in which all of these perspectives are trying to figure out the same thing. And to me, that's mm. how to stay together, how to survive together, how to love each other. And that's what really I, I hope this film would be all about, this family that's really learning to to be together and love each other. Yeah, and they have a rough time of it. I mean, the, the family is nearly torn apart uh, by the difficulty of the farming life. Um, mm. What an interesting uh, challenge to start casting people who play your family. <laughs> like, I wonder, I wonder if you wanted to have nothing to do with it and just say, I'm surrendering this, or if you uh, felt that you needed to micromanage it, you know, did, <laughs> um, you know, I'm a firm believer in the art of filmmaking and the, the art that every single person brings. And so even with the actors, like I, I tend not to micromanage. I like the idea that everybody's a creator so one of the first things I told the actors was, I trust you. I trust you as an artist to create something new out of this. And I don't want you to try to imitate. So I asked them not to imitate any of my family members. I didn't share any pictures mm. of my family or provide any clips or anything. But and what about the I, casting? I you had to choose them first. Yeah, even in choosing them, um, I tried not to think too much about my family, if that makes sense, because I didn't want to become too self-indulgent with this film. Mm. I, I wanted it to work as a story. So I was interested in finding the artisans, really, to, to find the people who could do it. There are characters in this film beyond your family. So early on, we meet a man named Paul who offers to work for the Yi family as a farmhand. And Paul's a devout Christian. He prays frequently, speaks in tongues, and he literally carries a cross, a life-sized cross every Sunday, uh, I suppose, to walk in the footsteps of Christ. Um, anyhow, mm -hmm. as, as he and Jacob Yee are tilling the soil, Paul suggests that the farmland might be cursed. The previous farmer had killed himself. You might want to think about doing something out here. You know, what? You know what an exorcism is? <laughs> yeah. No, there's no need for it. You know, what happened out here, that's no good. Something like that. You know, it's no good. Out. Out. Out in the name of Jesus! Out! Out! In the name of Jesus! Okay, now things, things will grow. Isaac, did the land ever feel like it was working against your family? Um, in many ways, I think that is something that I did notice as a child, the feeling that a garden can, as we see in scripture, almost capture the entire human experience in a way. There were lots of snakes on our property, very poisonous snakes, I should add. And it was just tough. Uh, life was a toil. Digging the earth and trying to let it yield and submit in a way is very tough work. But then at the same time, there was my grandmother who kind of did the reverse. She, she submitted to the land and she found 
where we needed to go to plant this plant called Minari and where it would thrive. And that's something that I felt like I learned from that experience too, just the different ways in which we can look at land and approach land. And maybe that helps us look at how we can approach life as well. Do you miss farm life? Um, oh, yes, I, I do miss it in many ways. Um, I live in LA now. I lived in New York for about nine years. And uh, it's always part of you. I, I heard a friend of mine told me that wherever you live when you're about eight years old will probably be the place that you feel most at peace um, when, when things are really difficult. And sometimes I wonder that because uh, when times are tough, I, I do kind of wish I could go walk around on a farm somewhere. <laughs> Um, the sense of place in this film, Minari, is strong, helped along by beautiful cinematography. I'm thinking of how amazing the outdoors scenes look, how great the close-ups are, the striking colors inside, the single wide. Do you want to say just a few words about the visual elements of this? Uh, yeah, I had some amazing collaborators on this film. The way that they worked in tandem together to get all the details right and to kind of visually show this story in a very poetic way, both the outdoors and indoors. Um, I, I just give them a lot of credit for that. Um, they, they took a lot of my ideas and made them better. And yeah, we worked a lot on wanting to create a feeling and atmosphere with this film. Um, yeah, I, I'm just so proud of the work that, that we all did together on it. You mentioned that your family uh, still lives in Colorado, Colorado Springs. Uh, yes, that's right. What do they make of the film? And are they the the ultimate, um, I don't want to say the ultimate audience, but are they like the audience you were most interested in pleasing or not? I th I would say that uh, they were the audience I was most scared of. So <laughs> I think maybe that's a better way to put it. <laughs> yeah. Um, just because I know uh, I'm, I'm getting so personal with this film and uh, I'm really talking a lot about my memories of childhood. I think they were stressed uh, before I showed it to them. But I had them come out here from Colorado. They came out here and watched the film with me and in uh, one of my family, other family members' living rooms. And um, it was such an experience watching it. They were getting so emotional. And uh, they told me all night long they couldn't dream about anything else but our farm and that time together. And um, the way that we talked to each other after that, I, I just felt like we were really seeing each other in a way. It, it felt like, yeah, it, it was magical. That's, that's all I can say. Um, and it was probably the most special screening that we've had. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Ryan. This was great. Director Lee Isaac Chung speaking with Ryan Warner in February. Chung was born in Denver. His film Minari received six Academy Award nominations Monday, including two for Chung, Best Original Screen Screenplay, and Best Director. Finally today, congratulations to Richard O'Neill, who won a Grammy Award in the Best Classical Instrument Solo category. I'm still on cloud nine. O'Neill is a violist with CU Boulder's internationally recognized Takach Quartet. He was honored for his performance of Concerto for Viola and Chamber Orchestra.
O'Neill told CPR Classical's David Ginder he thinks composers are finally starting to embrace the viola over the violin for key parts of their arrangements. You know, the viola has been an open book, right? It's a blank canvas. And so I feel like that blank canvas that we're seeing of instrumentalists saying, write me something, challenge me, is evolving. The range of the viola is sort of in a comfortable human range. I think it's not too high and it's not too low. It's just in the middle. So I think it has a human quality. Some people like it to be very conversational or very comforting or very, you know, warm, purpley and champagne or (laughs) not maybe not champagne, maybe like a dark red wine. Sure. Sort of color. Um, and then some people really push the viola to ex- extremes, having us play in, I don't call it the violin range, but in the very high extremities where the viola can go very, very high. It's only a fifth lower than the violin, so it can really get up there. Older violist Richard O'Neill has been nominated for a Grammy three times. This is his first win. Thanks for joining us today, and thank you to the team that helps us stay in tune. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Alexandra McMahon. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News.